friends. Welcome to the Skyline Church Podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. Today, I can give at least a decent message uh, on uh, beginning in the beginning. Beginning in the beginning. And we, we learned so much in just the first few pages of the Bible. But every, at the start of every volleyball season, which was back in November for us, we just sat down and we would talk about the, the keys and the fundamentals of winning a volleyball match. And for us, it comes down to, to serving and to receiving serve, right? If we can do those two things well, most likely that, that team's going to win the matches. And so at the beginning of a season, things may be a little boring, but it's the foundation that builds on everything else, right? Just, just a few weeks ago, Jonathan reminded us of the great coach, Vince Lombardi, right, from the, for the Packers. He would stand before his grown men at the beginning of an NFL season and say, gentlemen, this is a football. And then he would talk about the, the, the basics and the fundamentals of we got to get this thing past that line. Today, I just want to st- stand and say, ladies and gentlemen, this This at the beginning of 2024, this is the gospel. This is the good news. And we're going to start really, so I want everybody to take out your Bible, or if you prefer to look at it on your phone, I know some of these are ESV. Uh, The reading today will come out of the NIV, so if that freaks you out, get your phone. Go to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, it's ironic that the first creation story uh, actually ends in uh, chapter 2, verse 3, and uh, so we kind of missed the break uh, when we translated that, but we're going to start in Genesis chapter 2. Verse four. So what we what we're going to see is the first one started. uh, The first creation account starts in chaos. This one starts with this dry, uninhabitable land, and and we see that water comes up and and God breathes into the nostrils that He had formed of of Adam, and then He places them places him in Eden, which is also called delight where heaven and earth are one. And that has been our goal since we planted this church, that skyline would be that point that you look out in the horizon where it appears that the heaven and earth comes together. That's, that's Eden. So, Carrie, would you, this is going to be a big chunk. So I've asked somebody else to read it who's got a much more pleasant voice than me. Uh, so Genesis chapter 2, starting with verse 4, there's a point where she'll kind of skip from maybe 8 or 9 down to 15. You don't have to say that. Uh, and then we'll jump to Genesis 3, verse 1, and we'll read a chunk of that. But stay stay tuned. This is the basics. This is the gospel, my friends. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not set rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. 
Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man and he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds mm, sorry, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from, from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Folks, this is our story. This is our family story. And it's not just a story that happened, it's a story that happens, right? So really, I just want to look at three main chunks um, and, and deal with them one at a time. So we're going to see the tree. We heard about the tree. We heard about the lie. And then we saw the act of the will. So we're going to attack those three things today. The tree, the lie, and then the act of the will. So first, the tree. In this creation account, we're, we're introduced to two, to two trees, right? Because the fundamental plot choice begins right here for the rest of humanity. We see it. And what's the plot? Choice. Choice. Choice between life and death. And what's interesting is if, if you read this slowly, look at it closely, you'll see that there's life and then there's life, right? Because if he, he says to, to Adam, who's obviously alive, if you eat of this tree, you will. The first one. If you eat of this tree, you'll live on the first one, right? So, so there's life, and then there's obviously life. And I don't know if you listen to the Bible Project's fantastic uh, podcast, great videos, but they call this life 2.0, right? There, there's life, but then if you eat of the tree of life, there's even greater life, abundant life, eternal life. And then we see that there's death, and then there's death. 
Because he says, if you eat of this tree, now you're right, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And in fact, in, fact, in the ESV, I was reading as she was, uh, as Carrie was reading, that in the ESV it says, on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And so the question is, did they die? Not right away. Not right away. What we see, is, what did happen, what did happen on the day that they ate of the fruit, they were banished, right? They were exiled. And so in the first two pages of this book, we see the plot of the whole story. We see that there is this connection between exile and death. So they're exiled to the realm that they would eventually die. For Adam, that would be centuries later. But we see this theme throughout the Old Testament, don't we? Throughout uh, the prophets, they talk about this. Ezekiel chapter 37, right? They're, in, they're exiled in Babylon. He's standing over this, looking at a valley, and he sees dry bones, sees death, and he has an analogy there between death and them, the nation of Israel, being in exile. This theme becomes a very common theme. It doesn't stop at the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament as well. Paul says in Ephesians chapter, Ephesians chapter 2, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. You're alive, you're living, but you were dead when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Pause. I don't have time for this. It's not in the notes. But... Jesus, three times in John, from 12 to 14, calls Satan the prince of this air. Paul calls him the ruler of the air. I just ask, how much power does this guy have? I disagree, Perry. <laughs> Obviously, he's got a lot. Have you, looked at the have you looked at the world? Have you read the front page of the paper? He's obviously got some control, and we should acknowledge that. We'll get to why he has control in just a minute. The, uh, I'll pick it up in verse 4. But because of his, being God, because of his love, great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive. We were already living, but somehow he makes us more alive. Life 2.0 with Christ, even when we were dead in transgression. It is by grace you have been saved. Amen? Amen. So it's clear that we can be physically alive but covenantally dead, right? And we can be physically alive and covenantally alive, right? That's kind of the goal. And we can be physically dead yet still covenantally alive and ruling with God, which is the point of us being alive here, right? To ensure, see to it, that God's will is done here on earth as it is in heaven. So question, if humans are made in the image of God, and in a partnering way we bear his image to the world with blessing and life, why isn't there more blessing and life? It's because of Eden. It's because of the Eden story. Every single human being who's ever lived stands at a crossroads, going back as far as our family lineage will go. And we stand before two trees, and it's life or death. We live in a world of infinite potential. That's a gift from God. However, we consistently refuse 
to do it, to follow it, to eat of it, because we choose to follow our own definitions of good and bad. So instead of ushering in and unleashing life, we release blame and shame and death. That's why the world is the way that it is. Full of so much possibility for good and life, but also for ruin, futility, violence, and death. See, Eden's not just a story of two people in a garden a long, long time ago. Eden's today. There's a reason their names are human and living one, right? Human, that's what Adam means, living one. That's, that's Eve's name, living one. Hey, living one. Because all of us that are humans, all of us that are living ones, we face this same story. And we can choose to follow the folly of our ancestors or choose the tree of life over our definitions of what we think is right and what we think is wrong. That ancestral residue is what's called the flesh. And that's why the master of life tells us to crucify it and take up our cross every day. Proverbs talks a lot about this. Everybody's got their different things. A lot of Januarys, not every January, but I did this January, decided I would read a proverb a day. There's 31 proverbs, 31 days in January, so that's how I chose to, to uh, start 2024. And I've already seen this theme a, a lot. In fact, if you do this, it's pretty interesting that today it starts uh, Proverbs 7. By the way, today's January 7th. I haven't seen my daughter yet, but happy birthday if you're here. <laughs> But it starts with this. It's talking about an adulterous woman, which has nothing to do with my daughter. But number, <laughs> verse 1, verse 1 says this. My son, keep your words and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Is this sounding familiar? And then if you scroll down a little bit, we, uh, you know, he talks about, you know, overlooking this young guy and he's following this mistress, right? And he's like, oh my gosh, he is, no, don't do this. Please don't do this. That you're going to, that's not the tree of life. That, that's, that's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You think this is right, right? And then it says, at once he followed her like an ox going into the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose, till an arrow pierces his liver like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. Sound familiar? Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3. And if you choose to do what I'm doing, next Sunday we'll read Proverbs 14. Proverbs 14, 12 says this, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. It looks desirable. If I'm choosing good or bad, it looks good. But in the end, it leads to death. So that's the introduction. That leads us to the lie. So we talked about the tree. Here's the lie. You will not surely die. God knows your eyes will be open. What's Satan saying? I, I think this may be the crux. So if, you, if your attention span is short, tune back in just real quick because I think this is the best part of the whole, the whole talk today. What is Satan saying? He's saying, God, if you obey him, will hold you back. God knows, this is what Satan's saying, God knows if you do this, if you eat of that tree, you'll broaden your horizons, but he doesn't want you to do that. He wants to hold you back. 
Satan's diabolical scheme is clear in the first couple of pages. And then we see it for the rest. He wants to get into the human heart. If you obey God, you're going to miss out. If you obey God, you won't be fulfilled. If you obey God, you won't be happy. And don't you find it interesting that Satan doesn't go after the existence of God? Be somewhat foolish, and he's not a fool. He doesn't go after the existence of God. That would, that would be futile. Almost everybody believes in the existence of God. That's not what would destroy humanity. You know what? He doesn't even after, go after the law of God. He doesn't go after the holiness of God. And he doesn't even deny the will of God. You know what he does deny? He denies the goodness of God. He said, you can't trust God's goodwill. He says, God's not trustworthy. You're going to have to take your life into your own hands. And that lie settled deep into the human hearts of human and living one. And it is still embedded in our hearts today. And you know what it does? It does a lot. It says, I know God's word says that I'm not supposed to sleep with that person who's not my spouse. But boy, does that sound like a good idea. It says, I know God's word says that I shouldn't spend all this money on myself, that I should give some away. But really, really is that what he said? I know that I'm not supposed to hold a grudge against that person or seek revenge. But boy, seeking revenge sounds like the best idea. So we're tempted and the question is, why? Why are we tempted? Why do we face temptation? It's because in your heart and mine lies this big de debate from the first two pages of the Bible. Can we trust God or not? The fact that Satan has destroyed our belief in the love and goodness of God is beneath everything. Think about all the different stories of the Bible. We could do this all day, but the prodigal son and his brother, same thing, same problem, right? They don't trust the goodness of God. So the younger brother says, give me my inheritance. I think I can deal with it better than you can. And so he takes it. What about the older son? He doesn't trust the goodness of God, so he's gonna prove that he has earned whatever he gets, right? That's why we want to put people down. That's why we chase wild living. That's why we tirelessly try to prove ourselves to anyone and everyone. Because we lack the belief in the goodness and the love of God. That's why we're jealous. That's why we exploit. That's why we lie. When we don't trust God, we will do anything. We'll do anything to satisfy those desires. Which leads us to the act of will. The act of will. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. I don't know if you saw, but the Babylon Bee reported on a recent study that found that 100% of men would eat any fruit given to them by a naked woman. I don't know... I don't know what the source is for that. Sounds right. 
But seriously, what, what, uh, what, what could be so wrong about a tree? I'm not going to get half of you back. <laughs> Ladies, pay attention. We could see why the Ten Commandments would be wrong, right? Murdering somebody, lying, cheating, stealing. We get that. We can see how that could be wrong, but what's the big deal about a tree? I think we should answer that question. What's the big deal about a tree? Think about it. What if God would have given him an explanation? What, what if God would have said, if you eat of this tree, there will be infinite suffering and death for billions and billions of your descendants who come after you? I think, and a lot of people think that are smarter than me, that the very re that's the very reason that this decree is so important is because he didn't give the explanation. If he would have, they might have said, okay, let's not do it. Let's not do that. It wouldn't be worth it. But is that obedience? Is that obedience? No. Is that trust? Is that faith? No, that's cost-benefit analysis. And they would still be in the driver's seat. And God was saying to Adam and Eve, children, I am God, and your life is a gift. This world is a gift to you. I want you to live as if I'm God, and you live by my power, my desires, my instruction. I want you to live as if I'm God and you aren't. So, don't eat of that tree. Just trust me. And he gave Adam and Eve, and in so doing, gives each one of us in here today a choice to treat him as God or to treat and to treat your life and the world as if it belongs to him and to follow his loving direction. Or you have a choice. You can replace him with you. And you can be your own God. And you can act as if your life is your own, to do with as you please. And your mantra can be, now I do what I want. Now I'm my own authority figure and nobody can tell me what to do. It's a choice. But free will, free will, will requires us to look through the rules. Don't lie, don't cheat. Don't steal, don't commit adultery. To look through those wills, uh, rules and willfully choose not to judge the rules. To obey God's instructions simply because he's God and you're not. Obey his rules, not because of this cost-benefit analysis because of what you will get, but because of who you're worshiping. It's one of the reasons why I think that the way, this is off script, the way we do salvation stories where we present the gospel. Hey, choose heaven or choose hell. Which one do you want for the rest of your life, for all of eternity, billions of years from now? Which one do you want? It's cost-benefit analysis. It's probably for another Sunday. But there's better news and we'll get to it. Virtually every issue that you and I have in this world is because you and I or maybe some authority figure in your past has put ourselves in the place of God. That's the central problem. Does everybody see that? This is yes. Everybody see that? That's the central problem, putting ourselves in the place of God. And it's easy to see how like something, something like murder would be us putting ourselves in the place of God, right? It's pretty easy to see. But what about your anxiety? What about your anxiety? So many of us are eaten up with it. 
to the point where we've got to see doctors and be on medication, not downing those things. But why are we anxious? Why are we anxious? It's because we have this picture of how we think our life should go, how work should go, how our marriage should go, how child rearing should go. We have this picture and we think God's going to mess it up. And we would never say this, but we, we live in such a way as if we could do it better our way, right? Because of our mistrust of God and his goodness, we take matters into our own hands many times throughout the day. Is this making sense? This is the sin behind all other sins. It is the thing that caused futility, that leakiness, why we can't stay full, and death. How should we deal with worry? I don't know what's going on. I don't know why it's going on. But God does, and I trust him. Even if I can't see it from my current position, my, my current place in time and space, I trust him. From murder to anxiety to holding grudges, you won't forgive somebody, it's because you're putting yourself in the place of God. You're eating from the tree of good and bad. You think you know what they deserve, and you think that you have the right to ensure that they get what you think they deserve. We don't have that right. When we do that, we're putting ourselves in place of God. All of our problems, all of our problems are because we have done what the serpent asked us to do. Now, we don't mind obeying the will of God as long as it makes sense, right? As long as, it, as long as it is plausible. But if we don't think it's progressive enough, if we don't think it's rational enough, if we don't think it's going to meet our desires, what do we do? We choose the other tree. We choose our own way. I read a couple weeks ago about a guy named William Borden. Have you heard of Borden Milk? William, in the, he was born in the late 1800s, um, but in the early 1900s, he left Chicago and went to Yale. And while he was at Yale, he felt a call to the mission field. And upon graduation, he took his inheritance, which was a lot back then. He had a million dollars. Think about that. Early 1900s, a million dollars, and he gave it away to missions organizations. And then he went to North China to be a missionary to the Mongols. He was there for just a few months and contracted spinal meningitis and died in his mid-20s. And his family found his journal. And on the last page of his journal, it said, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. Why didn't his journal say, God, what are you doing? I gave up my wealth. I, I gave up my home. And now I'm going to give up my life for what? Why didn't it say that? Because he didn't, he didn't do it for a reward. He didn't obey God for results. He didn't obey God for impact. He obeyed God because God was God. 
and he was not. He did it for God's sake. And this, that's the answer. That's how we deconstruct the heart condition that's destroying our world, our cities, our families, and ourselves. If you make a calculated decision to do something for God, to get something from God, that's not trust. We can only truly choose to follow God because he's God. It's what sets us free from that deadly squeeze of the serpent. See, William Borden disbelieved the lie that God could not be trusted. And in so doing, you know what he did? He inspired thousands of missionaries in the early 1900s because of his story. Thousands of missionaries went out to reach thousands and hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people, because William Borden said, yes, because you're God and I'm not. Why why should we? Genesis chapter 3, 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees in the garden. And what we see happen in the first two pages of the Bible, we see happening for the rest of human history, don't, don't we? We are now hiders. We hide from God. We hide from each other. Times we hide from ourselves. Can you think back in a time in your past where you've done that? I would, th- I would say, of course you could. We have all done this. But here's the gospel in the first two pages. That while we hide, God seeks. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Where are you? See, it's our nature to hide, but it's his nature to seek, amen? He says, where are you? Does he really not know? Of course not. Of course not. But if he does know where they're at, what's he doing? What's he doing? He's pursuing those that disobey him no matter what. That's good news. That's good news. We get to see this final fulfillment of the good news in Jesus. We read about Jesus is predicted in those first few pages and then we hear about it in the New Testament that Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. How did he do that? I've wanted to know. How did he do that? Because there's, see, I read the front page of the paper. I see all this stuff that's still going on today. Doesn't, doesn't seem like he's crushed, but how did he do it? He dealt with all three. He dealt with the tree. He dealt with a lie. And he dealt with the act of will. How does he deal with the tree? He struggles in a garden with a tree, right? In the cross called a tree? You see, Adam and Eve were in this sunny garden and God says, obey me and you will live. And they didn't. And Jesus is in this dark garden. He says, obey me and you'll be crushed. And Jesus did. Why? So that we could live like Adam and Eve were meant to live. He climbed the tree of death and turned it into the tree of life for you and for me. 
He took, he took two trees in the garden and he made them one. Tree of death, tree of life. Now, now it's the same. He reversed the curse of the tree. What was the curse of the tree? Humans putting ourselves where only God deserves to be. What's the tree of life? God putting himself in the place of only where you and I were supposed to be. Amen? And that deals with the lie. The lie is you can't trust God. You can't trust his love. You can't trust his goodness. What overcomes that? What overcomes a lot of stuff? Seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. We had to see God climb the tree of death. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, ooh, hang on. He says, the cross is the only thing that will take the toxins out of our hearts so that we can finally trust the goodness of God. The cross does that. The cross reminds us, the cross proves we have a good, good Father. Which brings us to the act of will. Jesus says, what? Not my will, but thine be done. Three times. Three times he finds himself in a garden asking for this cup to pass from him. And he says these words, yet not my desires. See, the word that we translate from the Greek to will is actually the word for desires, which is the exact word in Hebrew that's used in Genesis chapter 2 when, she see, when Eve, living one, sees what is desirable to her, right? So we have Jesus at a tree of testing in a garden and it is his surrender of will and desire that returns humanity to the tree of life. So as the band comes, band, I still want you to, as you're coming, I want you to even hear this too. <laughs> you guys can come on up. I want to summarize this up with one story that's very familiar if you've spent much time in church at all. I think the, this short story encapsulates the whole thing that I've been trying to say today. It's the story of Abraham and Isaac and Sarah. Such a huge story, such an incredible plot. And, and what it really is, is this dramatic picture of Eden. Isaac is not Abraham's firstborn, is he? He's the secondborn, right? Ishmael was the firstborn. Why was Ishmael born first? Think about it. Why was Ishmael born first? Because of the failure of Abraham and Sarah to trust the goodness of God, right? Isn't that why? So when God requires the life back of the one that he actually gave life to, it just sounds crazy. But what we're told at the beginning of this story is that this is a test, why didn't God tell Abraham this is a test? Based on what we've talked about today, think about that. Why didn't God tell Abraham this is the test? Really two reasons. Number one, he's God and he didn't have to. He's God and he didn't have to. Number two, if he would have explained everything, it would have no longer required testing, faith, or proving, would it? Hey, Abraham, the due date's going to be on this date. I know you're going to be 100 and some years old. I know she's going to be really old and in a wheelchair, but that's when the, that's when the due date is. There's no, there's no, that's just human grit. That's just patience. That's not what God is looking for. He's looking for trust and surrender, dependence, 
laying down our will, choosing what we think is right and wrong. That's what he's looking for. Why? Is it because God's arrogant? No. No, it's because he knows what leads to life and blessing and allows us to pass on life and blessing. How'd the test play out? Abraham takes Isaac up on a mountain called Moriah. And the pivot moment happens at a tree. After Abraham surrenders and does exactly what God tells him to do and surrenders his definition of right and wrong, moral and immoral, at that moment, God sends a rescue, a substitute from God in a tree. Salvation. That's the good news. At the moment of utter surrender, even when things don't make sense. So, every day, every day, we choose many times between life, death, eternal life. Don't get caught up in thinking it's about quantity. Eternal life's about quality. So in 2024, here's what I would ask. I've tried to practice it the last couple days, and I don't know how long I hope this one sticks. I have so many things that last about two days, and then it's on to the next thing. But when you experience temptation, when you experience temptation, will you do this? Will you admit that that temptation is an all-out attack from Satan on the goodness of God? Because here's what I know about me. You can do a lot to me, but you talk bad about my dad. That's what he's doing. When Satan tempts you, he's talking bad about your father. And we're going to be a family that says, not my dad. He's a good, good father. We've talked about lust and anxiety, grudges. But we know that there's a lot more than this, right? So can you, would you just ask the Holy Spirit maybe to show you what's the thing for you? Maybe in the last few weeks, over the last year, what's something where you just keep eating the fruit from the tree of good and bad? Because you want to decide right and wrong. What's more and what's right for you? Should have just simply trusted then I would be remiss to not be one of those preachers that just give you an opportunity if you've never done that. If you've never decided, you know what? Not my will. Not my will anymore. 2023, I'm drawing a line in the sand. 2024, not my will, but yours be done. I surrender and I surrender all. Does it make sense? Let's just stand and ask the Holy Spirit to seal this message that that maybe in a room full of people and distractions as the kids run back in, good distractions, which by the way, when we were praying earlier, Chase talked about this very thing, that maybe this would be a picture as the kids run back in to mom and dad, that that's how we would return to the Father. Holy Spirit, have your way. Prompt 
asked us to respond however you want, whether it's bowing our knees in our pew, just bowing our hearts, raising our hands where we stand, having the courage to walk out of the aisle to one of the corners at the front where we know there's people always willing to pray for us. Maybe it's just an act of surrender by coming and kneeling at the altar starting 2024 out on our knees, just simply saying, I'll do it your way. Not because of some cost-benefit analysis, but because you're a good father. You're God, I'm not. In Jesus' name, amen.